0: Uh, Well, I wonder, when did you first have that uh, new sense of overwhelming responsibility? Uh, When the the situation you were in or the new role that you had was so serious that you thought, I've got to step up. Uh, I remember when our daughter, uh, Emma, was born. Uh, Stephen, I don't know if it was like this uh, with you and Peter. Uh, We had a few days surrounded by people. Uh, Helen was in hospital for 24 hours or so, and when she came out, we had parents... Uh, come to stay for a few days. Uh, But after about a week, uh, the time came came when we waved all the visitors goodbye, came back into the house and shut the door and it was just us and her. And we had this huge sense of new responsibility. That's true of other milestones in life, of course. For some, there's the the responsibility of entering an exam year at school, finals at uni. You know, this time you've got to knuckle down And get studying. Or at work, there's the the first time that you're promoted so that you have people working for you, working under you. Perhaps the first time when you have to do hiring and firing. You see, here in Matthew chapter 10, we see the 12 apostles about to take on responsibility for the first time. And it must have been both daunting and exhilarating for them. Uh, Just look at the context. Back up in chapter 9, verse 35, just on the previous page, 974. Uh, Jesus has been going through the villages and towns, teaching, preaching and healing. And yet the people just keep coming in huge numbers. And so we read verse 36. When he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. See, Jesus cares for these crowds. He longs for them to hear the message. He's filled with compassion for them. Let's remember that. If chapter 10 that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, if it's a chapter about mission, Jesus sending the 12 out to proclaim the good news, it is all based on Jesus' compassion for people who are harassed and helpless. I don't know what you're like when you're in a crowd, when you're wandering around Meadowhall, Hall perhaps, moving at a tenth the normal speed because of all the bustle, people dashing around from one shop to the next. I wonder if we share Jesus' sorrow and concern for the people that we see day in, day out, chasing around and yet lost. Verse 38 is a great prayer for the church today, isn't it? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I presume that the disciples did pray this prayer, and then the very next verse uh, we find out that they're going to be part of the answer. Well, prayer is no spectator sport, we should remember that. Uh, and chapter 10, verse 1, then, Jesus calls the twelve to him and gives them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. In verse 5, he gives them instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Can you imagine how exciting it would have been? (laughs) Had they been following Jesus around, they'd seen him doing these amazing things seeing huge crowds respond to his teaching. And now he was giving them authority to go and do the same. Yes, it would have been daunting, but it would have been so exciting. There would have been such an expectancy that this amazing following that Jesus had started was about to multiply exponentially. And they were being given front seat tickets to the show. Daunting, yes, but so exciting. And that is why verse sixteen is so shocking. Jesus says to them, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Just think about that for a moment. Imagine a sheep straying into the path of a pack of wolves. It would it would have seconds to live. You'll be aware, I'm sure, that there's lots of sheep imagery used in the Bible, and a lot of it has made its way into very famous artwork. Uh, So we see Jesus depicted as the Lamb of God, sacrificed for his people. Or or we see Jesus, uh, the loving shepherd, going out to rescue that single lost sheep and bringing it back on his shoulders. Or we see Jesus, the good shepherd, leading the flock into good pastures and safe feeding grounds. But I have never seen a picture of this, uh, of Jesus in the background, uh, pointing and some forlorn looking sheep now heading into the direction of some savage looking wolves. And yet Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And what would that mean for them? What is it that they were to do? Oh, I think two things come out in these opening verses of chapter 10. Firstly, that they were to share Jesus' proclamation, and second, that they were to share Jesus's persecution. And we're going to think about those two things in turn. But first, before we get to the specifics of the passage, we need, I think, to spend a little bit of time thinking about how we understand and learn from this passage today. As I say, we're going to be in it for a few weeks, Uh, how do we apply these events of long ago to ourselves today and tomorrow? We should be able to apply them, shouldn't we? On the one hand, this is a passage about the apostolic gospel and the response it receives from the world. So we will be able to learn what our message should be and what response to it we can expect And yet on the other hand, it is a passage about a particular situation and involving particular people, the twelve apostles no less. On the one hand, they are ordinary. Indeed, if I got you to shut your Bibles, I doubt if most of you could name them all. I tried it earlier on this week. I'd spend a bit of time thinking about the passage. I still left out Simon the Zealot. They're ordinary, and yet they are extraordinary as well called to do an extraordinary thing. They're they're unique in history. So what we mustn't do as we read this passage is pretend as though the historical setting doesn't matter, as though Jesus is just talking directly to us. Of course, that's just common sense, isn't it? We do it with other things. The other day I was in a meeting and someone had left their diary on the table at the end of it, so I picked it up to see whose it was. Now, suppose I'd opened it up and had read inside 3 p.m. dentist. And I said, oh, that must be for me. Or suppose it said, Sunday the 19th, visit John and Jane. And I said, well, I suppose I'd better go. Well, I wouldn't be here, and I'd have a couple of extra fillings. But of course we wouldn't dream of doing it with a diary. So why do we suddenly imagine that we are one of the 12 apostles living in Israel 2,000 years ago? Well let's not for instance, what are we going to make of something like verses seven and eight? As you go preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Some would just take it wholesale into today and say that our evangelism must be accompanied by just these sorts of miracles power evangelism particularly prominent it was 20 or 30 years ago uh, with people like John Wimber, but it's still around today. Or what about verses 19 and 20? This is another favourite that people like to quote. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Is that a promise for us? Can I avoid sermon preparation from here on in? The problem with picking out verses like that, or like uh, verse 8, of course, is what about all the verses that we don't pick? Verse 10, take no bag for the journey, or extra tunic, or sandals, or a staff. Well, I don't have a tunic, let alone an extra one, but uh, is this a a ban on suitcases for Christian workers? Or what should we make of verse 5? Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. If we read that at face value today, there's no evangelism to be done in Britain at all. We need to be careful as we read. Yes, Matthew has written this for us. uh, By which I mean that when God inspired Matthew to write his gospel, he knew every time and place where that gospel would be opened and taught, right down to our service here today. And given that it is a chapter about mission and the gospel, yes, we will learn things about mission and the gospel but we must make sure we understand the situation that they were in and the particular role that they had or else we'll jump to all sorts of wrong conclusions well having taken a step back then to think about what we're doing let's take a step back in and look at these verses what was Jesus sending these twelve out to do well firstly uh, they were to share Jesus' proclamation Verse 7, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. What's the message then? It is the kingdom of heaven is near. The very message that has been on Jesus' lips, uh, back in chapter 4, verse 17. What's the message? Well, it's about a kingdom. It's the first thing. This is about Jesus being king of his people. It's the fulfilment of history. It's the new Israel being inaugurated. God's people united to him in Christ. That's why here we have the 12 apostles. It's because like the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, these 12 will now be the foundation of God's people. Indeed, in Revelation chapter 21, uh, you don't need to turn to it now, John has a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And it has 12 gates, three on each side, and on the gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the city has 12 foundations. And on those are written the name of the 12 apostles. You see, these 12 men are are the foundation for the church, the new Israel. They will be the ones who take this message of Jesus out to the world. And it is a message about a kingdom. What is a kingdom, though? Let me read to you a short quote from Graham Goldsworthy's book, Gospel and Kingdom. He says this, it's very helpful. We may best understand the concept of the kingdom in terms of the relationship of a ruler to subjects. That is, that there is a king who rules, a people who are ruled, and a sphere where this rule is recognised as taking place. Or put another way, the kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place, Under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what a kingdom is about. That's what this kingdom is about. That's why when we speak of the gospel, we must always be clear that we're talking about a relationship with God that is on offer. One in which we recognise him as our king and in which we enjoy all of the benefits of living in his kingdom. So it's a message about a kingdom, but note here too that it's the kingdom of heaven. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not tied to a country or a nationality. Jesus said elsewhere, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. <laughs> the ultimate fulfilment of this kingdom is what we await. When Jesus returns, uh, returns like that thief in the night that Nathan was singing about. And we are part of a new and perfected world. With God living with us and Jesus on the throne. See, Jesus is the key to it. Once he arrived on earth, he could say the kingdom of heaven is near. The gospel is about him because he is the one who achieves it. He is the one who opens the door for us to enter. He is the one who changes us from being God's enemies to God's friends, to his people. And the apostles hadn't seen it yet, but it happens at the cross and resurrection where Jesus dies our death and removes our sin and is raised to new life with a victory we can share. And now that is where verse 8 comes in. See, as the apostles proclaimed that Jesus' kingdom was near, they were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. It's because those miracles were a great signpost to the work that Jesus had come to do, to his identity as the one who would do it. We see that in the next chapter too. Flip over the page with me to chapter 11. John the Baptist is in prison. But he's heard about this Jesus and he's wondering, could this be the one? Could he be the the one that God had promised, our saviour? And he's in prison so he can't go and ask him. So he sends some others to ask in his place. And they say, verse 3, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. You see, those miracles were the proof of Jesus' identity. They cried out to all who saw them, he's here. God's promised saviour has come. And the apostles, as the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' kingdom establishing work, did similar miracles too. So in 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul can say to the Corinthians, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. That's what's going on. These miracles said, look who Jesus is and look what he's come to do. Now please don't misunderstand me. Do I think God can and does perform miracles today? Yes, I do. But don't point me to Matthew chapter 10 and tells me that that's why he does. These miracles are signposts pointing to the arrival of Jesus as our Savior, and they look ahead to the work He has come to do. You see, he healed the sick because through the cross and resurrection, he brings in His kingdom where the suffering of sickness will be removed. He raised the dead because by his death and resurrection our last enemy of death is defeated forever. He cleansed those with leprosy, people who were alienated from society and shut out of the temple because through the cross the alienation of our sin is removed and our sins are washed clean. He drove out demons because at the cross and resurrection Jesus triumphed over Satan so the chains of our slavery to him are broken. These things are marvellous. But I'm not to expect them by right today. Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so whilst I am still in this world, I will be surrounded by the suffering of sickness, the sorrow of death, the stain of sin, and the spiritual power of Satan. But I await a kingdom where they will be removed forever. Now for me today, I take it that this means that whilst I don't need to mingle miracles with the message, I do point people back to these miracles. The miracles that identify Jesus as our Saviour and explain what his kingdom achieves. That thanks to him, I can enjoy being part of God's people. That one day there will be this new creation which I can be part of and in which he will make everything perfect. That's what the apostles were to share. They were to share in Jesus' proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is near. But then secondly, they were to share Jesus' persecution. And really that's from verse 17 onwards. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentile. Uh, Well, no they won't, not yet. You see, here Jesus is already widening out the application of what he's saying. Uh, They're not even going to the Gentiles yet. uh, But here Jesus is laying out the pattern that will mark the spread of the gospel. A pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts and indeed throughout church history. See, the gospel brings persecution and division. Down in verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think I, have, think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. See, his kingdom is not of this world, and so when his kingdom enters this world, there will be war. And in bringing people into peace with God, they become the enemies of the world around them. Uh, Here this persecution comes in three directions, doesn't it? First from the religious, they will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. Uh, Next there's persecution from government, verse 18, they would be hauled before the courts and arrested. Third there's persecution from within families, verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And we don't need to look far to see that those three sources of persecution are alive and well today. From the religious who don't want to hear a gospel of grace. The governments who outlaw and imprison Christian ministers and Christian converts. I know some of you will know the heartache of having family members who are not believers and who make things very hard. I can think of a man, a friend of ours, whose parents practically disowned him when he became a Christian minister. And those things aren't the exception. They're not the isolated cases. Verse 22 All men will hate you because of me. And I want to ask are you ready for that? Here we are, in gentle forward, in the comfortable West. Do we really expect persecution? Are we ready for it? Uh, do we think that actually, though, uh, Jesus is sending us out like sheep among puppies? No, don't be deceived. The gospel divides today as it did then. Persecution will come today as it did then. Our plans are moving on now with a church plants. Don't come if you think it's going to be easy. Don't come if you want it easy. Uh, for all of us, don't tell your friend the gospel if you want things easy. But do tell it. Because you share Jesus' compassion. Do share it because you want to share in Jesus' proclamation. And then don't give up when you share in Jesus' persecution. You see, we're to fix our eyes on him. We're to follow him. We're to be like Him. He is the one who is betrayed. Even by one of the twelve. Even by one of those closest to him. It hangs over this passage, doesn't it? That Judas is there. That Judas went out on this mission. That Judas took no gold or silver or copper with him and yet so soon he will trade Jesus himself for a bag of money. In verse 22, Jesus says, All men will hate you because of me and verse 24 a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master it is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub how much more the members of his household it is enough for a servant to be like his master is it enough for you Jesus was mocked. Is it enough for us to follow him, to trust him, to be like him? Or do we want the respect of our world? Jesus was denounced as a devil. Is it enough for us to follow him, to trust him, to be like him? Or do we want to be viewed as saints? Jesus was tortured and killed. Is it enough for us to follow him, to trust him, to be like him? Or do we want our safety guaranteed, our comfort secure? See, we have a world in need, people harassed and helpless. They are like sheep without a shepherd, and so we must share in Jesus' proclamation. But they are also like a pack of wolves. And so we will share in Jesus' persecution. It's a great responsibility. It's an exciting task, but a daunting challenge. And yet we do not need to be afraid. Next week, we'll see why. But for now, look again at verse 22. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end... Will be saved. What a promise that if we keep our eyes on the Lord, He will return and we will be saved. Let's pray.